Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with San Francisco-based jazz saxophonist, flutist, composer, and bandleader, Jean Feinberg. We had a great talk about her latest 2022 CD with her contemporary octet, Jazzphoria. Their material ranges from swing and blues to funk, R&B, hip-hop, bebop, and New Orleans Second Line. This Bronx, New York native has recorded more than 50 albums. She's been the world over recording and touring with David Bowie, Melba Liston, Bo Diddley, and so many others. She is a true artist and poet. Her passion and stories are full of energy and wonder and joy. Thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm thrilled to be on your show. I love Kansas City. And I know that you were a part of the Kansas City Women's Jazz Fest. And I want to know, first and foremost, kind of your history with that, how it all came about, kind of some memories of Kansas City. Let me see. Well, at the time, I'm from New York. At the time, I was living in New York, and I had a group called Deuce with trumpeter Ellen Sealing. And it was my first album with all my original material. And we played a lot around all over the country. And I guess the women from the Jazz Festival heard about us, and the first thing my first trip to the jazz festival was I, I was an all-star saxophone player one year, and then another year they brought the group in as, as the combo winner or something like that. So that was my first connection with Kansas City. So talk to me a little bit about the city, your recollection. What was so charming about Kansas City for you? You know, I don't recall anything from those days because we spent our entire time in at the festival. However, a couple of years ago, I was artist in residence at the Kimmel Harding Nelson uh, Art Center in Nebraska City. And one day, four of the residents kind of made an escape. We I don't know if we were supposed to do this or not, but we, we got a car and we drove down to Kansas City and we stayed in a hostel overnight. <clears throat> and we just did everything we could possibly do in, in the city. Uh, the other residents were visual artists. I was the only musician. So I dragged them to, um, let me see, what was it, the Lawnside Barbecue? Oh, BB's, the blues joint, yeah. BB's, yes, because I heard that they had a jam session. So anytime I go anywhere, if there's a jam session, I'm there. And yeah. I didn't have my sax, I didn't have my saxophone, but I also played drums. So I made these residents sit there for like hours until my name came up and I played drums there and that was fantastic. And then, um, we went to, I wanted to go to the Jazz Museum, but instead we went to the Kemper because they were visual artists. That was fantastic. And then oh, yeah. at night, at night, we went to Missy B's. Oh, cool. And, oh, it was so cool. We saw a drag show, and then we went upstairs and danced our butts off to the disco dancing thing and then went back to the hostel. So that that more recent memory, collection of memories of Kansas City is what sticks in my mind. Kansas City's kind of a hidden gem. Like, you don't know until you get here, and there's so much going on. We are really a art hub that people don't probably realize. Well, I know that, and, you know, I want to go back to Kansas City and really steep myself in the jazz. When I was in residence in Florida um, at another residency, a lot of the people there, it was in Seaside, Florida, and a lot of the people there were from Kansas City. I don't know how that happened, and so we talked about it a lot, and some of them invited me to stay with them, so I definitely plan to come back because, you know, Kansas City is an icon in, in jazz history. You have to go there. Absolutely, you do, yeah. So, you know, talking about your brand new album that's out right now, you know, it's on the heels of, of this 
pandemic and the world of live entertainment getting shaken and turned upside down for the last two years. What does this release mean for you with that possibility of being able to actually promote it live and to kind of have a new, hopefully a new opening into live entertainment again? Well, you know, like all artists, it just put a stop to everything. We recorded the basic tracks for the album on March 12th and 13th, 2020. So we just had recorded that. The um, COVID was just beginning to be known because I remember we were bumping elbows in the studio. I went back to the hotel and that night my residency in, in uh, Idaho called and said they were canceling the residency and that's when everything hit. So then I realized I can't finish this album. We can't go back into the studio. We can't perform. We can't do anything. So all my plans were stopped. And I spent the next two years just composing, which actually was wonderful. It was like a residency at home. It was fantastic. And then in March, uh, oh, in the summer of 21, I decided we could go back in the studio. We did some overdubs. Mostly we put, we, uh, some people, by then people didn't like their solos because they've been practicing the whole pandemic. So they went in and overdubbed their solos. And the rest is history, at least for me. So um, the pandemic, horrible as it was, basically didn't stop me. It stopped me from playing live and releasing the album so soon, but it was a, a gift for composition. Yeah, and I think there's been a lot of silver linings for a lot of people. I think life has moved so fast it gave everybody kind of a pause to either do what you did, composing or finishing projects they didn't have a chance to do or finally have a minute where you're not on the road. Absolutely, absolutely. Also, I, I have a poetry book out, and, it, and I was able to finish the, that book at that time, too. So it was, it was good for us, but horrible for a lot of other people. Yeah. You know, the one thing about this pandemic is, is that it kind of was this self-imposed exile where we all had to look within and be reflective. And with that in mind, what did you learn about yourself that maybe you didn't realize before that's going to make you a stronger musician and promoter of this album as you get back out and start doing things again? Well, what I learned about myself as a musician or, or more, even more as a composer was I just listened to a lot of other big band music because my octet is basically the uh, before before this octet, I wrote for big band. I was commissioned by the Montclair Women's Big Band here in um, Berkeley, California. And I had written for big band, and I said to myself, self, why can't I? It's hard to book a big band because so many people, you know, so much money. It's all about the money. So why can't I condense this into a smaller group? So I started listening to big band arrangements. Um, I listened a lot to Basie and Ellington. I read books by Henry Mancini and learned a lot more about how I want to condense the big band horn sections into four horns. As far as my own playing, I went back and listened to my favorite saxophone players, one of which is my friend, my good friend, Michael Brecker. Yeah, well, I think it will make me stronger because I have this album now, and I also did a lot of research on promoting albums. I've promoted my albums before, but some of them were on labels, so the labels just promoted it. But I read a lot of jazz publications, and I hired a fantastic publicist. And I just feel a lot more confident. Not that I didn't feel confident before, because I did. But I feel a lot more confident in my arrangements and in putting them out there and putting myself out there as a... a a solo artist, not that I'm a solo artist because the band is the artist, but I just feel a lot better about my compositions because I had two years to refine them, 
And now I am so ready to get out there and play. We started to play again, and it's fantastic. I just feel, I feel great. As so, James Brown said, I feel good. That's right. <laughs> so ultimately, at the end of the day, what are you hoping the listener gets from this album? I know there's a lot going on. There's a lot of influences. But what do you want them to get? I mean, this is, this is obviously is full of emotion. I mean, you, you did this during a time when the world was shutting down, and now you finally get to release it. I want people to celebrate. I, I, my music is all about grooves. And it's all, it's jazz, but it's dance music. My mother was a dancer. I've danced all my life. To me, my favorite music is something that's going to make my body move as well as my brain. And I want people to find something in, on the album that they really relate to because we cover a lot of genres. We cover bebop and swing, but we also cover reggae and wall, jazz waltz and New Orleans uh, second line. I want people to smile and be happy and move their bodies and find something that really speaks to them rather than just analyzing the, I mean, this would be cool too, but analyzing the uh, horn arrangements and um, I, I'm just so proud of the personnel in the band. It's seven women and one man and I want people also to hear the way these fantastic Bay Area women play and maybe have a little different impression of the strength and the power that women musicians, jazz musicians have. Everything started for you in New York, correct? You said you're from New York? Yes, I was born okay. in the Bronx. Okay, beautiful. I could tell by the accent. So, oh, no. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, my, and, and my dad actually was born in Brooklyn and raised in Long Island. So people say wow. that to me, and I'm like, yeah. So I've been in Kansas City my whole life. You know, he, he left at 16 or 17 to join the military and got out here at Richards Cabauer and, you know, fell in love and here I am. So, you know, I, I, so anyway, I, I could tell, but my question to you is, you obviously have a very creative artistic spirit in you, music, poetry. How did all of this begin for you? How did the seeds begin? How did the jaws of jazz get in there? How did all of this begin for you? I love that, the jaws of jazz. I ha I'm going to remember <laughs> that as a quote from cool. you. Um, <clears throat> I, my mother was a professional dancer. My, her sister was a professional artist. I started piano lessons when I was six years old. Um, when I was eight, I, I found a trio that I wrote for me and my friends when I was eight years old. I found it recently. Um, then I went through recorder and flute, folk guitar, wrote some folk guitar tunes. I've studied music my entire life. I went to music camp every summer from age maybe 10 to the end of high school. But I didn't play jazz, but I did improvise. I didn't call it jazz. I didn't know what it was, but I used to have music in my head, primarily classical music because there was a lot of Bach and Mozart in my house, and I would make up music in my head, and I would hear the different parts coming together, and I just thought that that was everybody did that. I thought everybody took music lessons, and everybody did that. So it's been in my head all along, and it feels like it's bursting, like I... I go to bed at night and I hear new music and I, sometimes I try to write it down and in the morning it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it's just there, yeah. All through college I played guitar and sang folk songs because I was like into a big anti-war person. But it's just been there all my life and it's still there now. Like there are a million tunes in my head waiting to be written and I just have to decide 
what's the next one? Like, what does the band need to balance out our repertoire? So, and I've written poetry all my life, too. My father was a poet, and he used to leave poems on the table every morning when he went to work. So I guess those are my influences. I also have synesthesia, grapheme synesthesia, which means that I see letters and numbers and months and weeks in color, which I also thought as a child that everybody did. And so a lot of time music, a lot of times music appears to me in colors. So I can choose the colors that I think the band needs to add to its repertoire, if that makes any sense. That does. That's fascinating. Absolutely. So who would you cite as musical influences, whether jazz, blues, or otherwise, that really influenced the way that you were going to find your voice and, and the way you were going to approach your music? Well, first and foremost, the Brecker Brothers. I used to see them in New York all the time. As I said, Mike Brecker was something of a friend of mine, and they just blew me away. They blew me away. And um, then when I moved to California, well, when I, I used to come on tour to California every year, and I got to see Janis Joplin at the Fillmore in, in, uh, in San Francisco, and then I saw her at the Fillmore East in New York, and Janis blew me away because what I loved about her was her timing, the way she placed her phrases in the time, the way she would hold them over to next bar, the way she would come in early, the way she would almost use like half-note triplets in her, her singing. And that was my inspiration for the way I try to phrase in my music. Also, when I was in New York playing at, I'm trying to remember the name of this club. Anyway, um, I was in a band that opened for James Brown. I, you know, I got to see him every night. I never got to talk to him because he would be away in his hotel and his band would be in the dressing room. James Brown, I mean, I can't sit still. It does it for me. So I would say my favorites are those. And then when I got into playing jazz, I was primarily interested, I think, in the more R&B type jazz players like Grover Washington and Stanley Tarantine. After I graduated from Penn State University, I went to Indiana University to study jazz with David Baker. And that's when I got really steeped into um, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. In fact, I got to share a stage with Dizzy Gillespie at Carnegie Hall once. That was unbelievable. And that's where I was forced to memorize all the bebop tunes, all the bird tunes and all that. And that's when I added that kind of uh, consciousness to my playing. So I got to wonder, as somebody that loves music, I've seen a lot of live shows. Did you all realize what you were watching when you were looking at Janice? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody, been anybody as dynamic as that on stage for a long time. Were you, were you all like, oh, my God, look at this? Well, we were. I was, oh, my God, look at this. I don't think I realized at the time how iconic she was because – Seeing Janice made me go back and listen to Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith and the people that she drew from. So that's where my blues sensibility comes from, also from listening to the Basie band. I don't think I understood how iconic she was, but I understood that it was a show. And I knew that when I wanted to play, I didn't want to just stand there and play. I wanted to be something of a show. So I got to wonder, too, with talking about Dizzy and Carnegie and all of that, who have been some of your, like, your influences that, that you've been around that have reverberated throughout your career? Well, studying with Mike Brecker, studying with Dave Sanborn in New York, 
Every time George Coleman would come to New York, I would grab a lesson with him. As far as the saxophone itself, rather than just the improvisation, Joe Allard, who taught all the great saxophone players in New York, he was a clarinet player, but he taught all the great saxophone players, and it was Joe who taught me how to approach the instrument and changed my sound completely, and I still do his warm-ups, and I still think about that. When I get all excited and start pinching on the mouthpiece, I think Joe Howard says, no, 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 don't do that. My parents also also played a lot of Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and all the standards, so somehow I absorbed all the lyrics to those standards, which really come in handy when I'm playing standards, which I don't do with my band, but, you know, I'm a freelance musician. And, and so when I play standards, I always like to know the lyrics because that informs the phrasing. And, of course, those uh, those great vocalists like Nina Simone and, and, you know, and Ella and Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, their phrasing informs my phrasing, too, when I play the standards. What is it that you like the best about being a musician? You know, every day you get to wake up, and you know, and a poet and, and a creator. What is the thing that motivates you every day when you wake up? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, I, um, that's just who I am. So I don't know if I need motivation, but what motivates me is the excitement of finding a new tune. To What tune am I going to write today, assuming I don't have to do my taxes, which I have to do now? And playing live, the audience, playing with the audience. I'm, I don't love recording. I love performing. I record because that's what you do, but I love performing. I get totally excited absorbing the energy from the audience, and it's my job to whip them up and try to make them move and that's what excites me about being a performer. The music, I don't know, it's just, that's what I do, that's who I am. I have music in my head. This is not, this is a, a blessing but also a curse. I have music in my head 24-7 and it gets in my way a lot because sometimes I just tell myself, stop, just try to meditate and don't have any music in your head and sometimes I'm able to do that. Most of the time, the only way to get rid of the music is to replace it with some other music. So I try to replace it with some music that's more calm. I don't know if, every, if other people are like that or not, but I'm a little bit hyper, as you can tell. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I feel it. I, I, I'm a busybody. I, I totally could tell immediately from your voice. If you have a dream tonight and you run into the younger version of yourself around the time that you were going to start going after your dream, and you could tell your younger self, your younger version, a piece of advice based on the wisdom that you've accumulated over all these years, what would you say? Stop thinking about what other people think of you. Stop worrying about whether people think you're a good player, whether people think you're just an R&B player and can't play jazz. Just stop. Every time you worry about someone else's opinion of yourself, it drags you down. So just stop it and be yourself. So, it took me a long time to, to get there, and I'm not totally yeah. there yet. But. Yeah, I get it. I, I, I understand. Believe me, I'm knocking on 50, and I understand that more and more. You have to just march to your own tune, for sure. For the purposes, and I know you, you there's many musical influences that you have, but for the purposes of our show being jazz, why do you love jazz? Oh, my gosh. I love jazz because you get to play what you want. You know, the improvisation, you don't have, I, I never wanted to play shows. I have played some shows, you know, in the pit, pit orchestra, but because I play flute too, so sometimes I play flute and piccolo in a show. I don't like it. 
I hate playing the same thing every single night. I can play classical music and did for years, but I don't get a thrill out of interpreting something somebody else wrote. And I don't mean to put down classical musicians. I totally understand that they're, well, I don't even have to go into everything they put into it and, and how they interpret it in their own way. But I want to, it's so, the thrill of getting up on stage and playing a solo, which is completely different from what I played the night before. What I like to do in my band is we switch around the solos so people don't get used to playing solos on the same tunes. They get to play solos on all the different tunes, different nights, and that's what inspires them. So it's all, it's all about the improvisation. If I couldn't, could never improvise and just play other people's music, I would still do it, but I wouldn't have the thrill that I have playing jazz. So, you know, as we do kind of start returning to the stage and we're in the audience, what do you hope we realize about the power of live music that we've all largely been away from for two years now? I hear what people in the audience say. You've heard this a million times before, but there is nothing like the emotional connection between a listener and a player. It's the difference between sitting home and going out to a party or going out and socializing with other people, with your friends, and getting energy from them and giving that energy back and just the social aspect of it, and the fact that all these people are experiencing the same thing at the same time, but in their own ways. So there is nothing like live performance. If all I could do would be record, I would not be happy, because the recording studio is very isolating to me. You ha I have to see those people in the audience. That's one thing about playing big um, arenas, which I did with Chic and I did with Laura Nero. You can't see the audience. You have to imagine them, but you can feel them sometimes. You can feel the energy, but there's nothing like seeing the people and see, because they throw it back to me, and that fires me up. So, and I've heard a lot of listeners say the same thing. So there's nothing like that. You, recording studio is not like that. Playing at home by yourself is not like that. So we need it. It's, it's like art be in, a, in a museum being appreciated and, and absorbed by other people at the same time that you are. You don't have to be talking to those other people, but you're both experiencing the same thing together and in your own way. So in this long career, what are you the happiest about? When you sit back and think about your life and music, what, what brings you the most pride? The, the fact that I, as a, as a woman saxophone player, and when I started playing the saxophone, I had never seen another woman play the saxophone or heard of it. I just did it because it was me. I was a flute player, and I heard saxophone, and somebody told me it was similar fingering, and I got a saxophone, and I n never thought that, I could actually do that. Yeah, the, fa the fact that I am where I am, that I could compose and that people would actually like the music and people would actually play the music that I write. I hear it in my head. I hear it on my computer. The fact that live musicians and wonderful musicians would actually play that and to hear the stuff that was in your head played by other people, with their putting, they're putting their signature on it. I just never thought that I would be able to do this. I thought I was going to be a chemistry teacher because my first degree, I have two bachelors, my first bachelor's degree was in chemistry. And I realized, no, that's not the life I want. And I guess the fact that I just keep doing this just because I want to and sort of forgot about the fact that maybe I can't. And... I'm just thrilled that in one's short life, or my short life, 
I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do and, and that I'm still able to do it. And to have an album out and have people listen to I mean, that's, that's my thrill. So everyone has a perception or an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But ultimately, you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? I think I'm a crazy person. I think I'm so hyper that sometimes I drive people crazy. I also think, okay, so I'll be, I won't be humble. I think I'm a very funny person, and people tell me I'm funny, especially on stage, which I love. I love being funny and having people laugh at my jokes. I just think, you know, I can't be humble. I think that I'm a go-getter. I think that I'm someone who at some point, and this, a lot of this is thank you, thanks to my parents, so a person who thinks she can do whatever she wants to do. It took me a long time to get there, but in the meantime, when I was thinking I couldn't do it, I was doing it anyway. So I just think I'm a go-getter, I guess. And I hope to be a person of integrity. Integrity is what I value most in my friends and in other people. And a lifelong goal is to never lie. Not that one can ever uh, achieve that goal, and not that I've ever I've achieved that goal. But yes, I think I'm a go-getter and a person who tries to be a person of integrity and a person who appreciates other people and cares about them. I like that answer. Hey, thank you for taking some time out to talk to the show and, and open up about this new album and your life and music. I appreciate it. Well, Joe, thank you so much for having me on Neon Jazz. I love your show. I listen to the interviews all the time, so I appreciate oh, wow. it. And, and hello to Kansas City. I'll be back. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in New York, San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Gene for a cool time and music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.